everyone, and welcome to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, The Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. I'm Colin, your main host, welcoming you back this week for some more Legend of Korra discussion. And with me this week, I have Daniel joining me. Hello. Hello. Uh, so a little bit of uh, info here. This is the first time that Daniel is making his way through Korra Book 2 and beyond. I'm, I'm a plebe. <laughs> well, you know, you can call yourself a plebe, whatever you have you. This is an exciting perspective, and that's what I am most pumped about. Uh, I've been made sure to like only watch the episodes that we're talking about, so I have no future knowledge about anything that's going to happen. <laughs> well, it also helps me uh, kind of keep in discussion as well and reeling it in uh, in terms of not jumping too far ahead. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, awesome all right cool uh so guys this week we are going to be discussing episode three civil wars part one uh we also will be uh doing uh episode four uh next week so we're recording these back to back because we gotta have these good good discussions all at once because this is it is all so chunked together and i know that if we did both of them in one episode it'd probably be like two hours long right um there's there's a lot going on here so before we kind of jump into the episode i i want to get your thoughts on kind of the first two episodes of this second season uh just i don't know your overall you don't have to go too far into it but just kind of like the feelings that you're getting with this new story uh that they're taking with the opening of the spirit portal in the south mm. and uh Unalak coming in um well first off as soon as <laughs> Unalak showed up i'm like yep dude's a bad guy <laughs> <laughs> pretty uh pretty unequivocally right there but I no, I thought it was it was very interesting. It's it's kind of something that's never Avatar's not done before, because you know everything with Aang in the group was all focused on the Fire Nation and the conflict with the Fire Lord and a very um, I don't know, I don't want to say earthly but physical realm sort of conflict that's mm. you know not really like the Avatar's thing, but but now we're starting to delve into spirits and how they affect the world and uh, more traditionally sort of the Avatar's wheelhouse of why they exist and their purpose in existing when and where they do. So I, th- I think that sort of approach to events is, is very interesting and I'm interested to see where it goes. Uh, and I really like how they animated the spirits too. Like the mm. first time that the the little little dude pops out and like just kind of standing there, I I was kind of expecting like you know sort of a slow menacing uh, kind of stalking approach, but then he just like zips and covers fifty yards in like two seconds. It was like whoa, whoa okay, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, there's just no time to prepare. It's just like it's there and it's in your face. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really cool. Very uh, kind of like not tropey, but a, a kind of a classic horror aspect, really, rather than mm. you know, an action cartoon. It was it was very surreal and like 
oh my gosh, this is, this is happening right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely uh, a lot of elements of, uh, of different genres that they really implement in Korra. And we definitely saw that in the first season too. There were some like moments that were straight out of horror films mm. with Amon and bloodbending, like his like... Uh, taking away the bending and just like there's there was a lot of those very scary terrifying moments and I think that that's definitely one of Korra's biggest strengths as a series is that they really tap into uh, a lot of great narrative and genre tropes and tools to add to their overall toolkit yeah definitely they 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 don't shy away from you know more I guess fully developed dramatic themes mm, mm-hmm. rather than you know the original avatar which was still you know, i i still kind of get the feeling that they were trying to cater still to like their very young audience so they didn't do things like that but with with core i think they feel a little freer to explore that avenue and yeah i mean like you said it's a lot of different themes popping up that are really well developed and well used Mm, for sure uh yeah so let's get into episode three civil wars part one so of course at the end of last episode Korra had opened up the southern spirit portal and a huge beam of light erupted into the sky the southern lights shone again and as they were arriving back to the southern water tribe we see ships not from the fire nation but from the northern water tribe pulling into the harbor and troops entering the streets and an invasion taking place we open up pretty much right after that the north invades and Korra and Unalak uh, kind of speak to this. Um, it's it's interesting because, you know, as Korra is trying to understand this, she's trying, she's feeling frustrated about it. Unalak, he knows what to say and how to pacify Korra and always knows to kind of just like put a very positive twist on something that is definitely, to us as viewers, <laughs> full of red flags. Yeah. <laughs> That was as soon as the episode started and like you see the Northern waterbenders, you know, forcing people to the sides of the street and blockading the harbor and like Cora's just standing there. She's like, oh, what are your ships doing here? <laughs> so I'm like, uh, what do you think? They're invading. But like, she's just so chill and relax about the whole thing. Like that was, I think that's and will probably be mentioned a couple times throughout this episode's discussion her laid back like chill attitude about something that is so very clearly not okay is a huge issue for me <laughs> like mm-hmm. she i i don't feel like she was this naive at the end of the first season but mm-hmm. now like she's done her avatar thing she can use the avatar state and like she just I don't know doesn't care it seems like because like this this is very clearly an invading force and she isn't the least bit concerned about them 
and like just accepts Unalak's answer at face value, like, oh, they're here to protect the spirit portal. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, <laughs> mm, yeah. what is going on? <laughs> well, I think a lot of it, too, is the complacency of peacetime. Uh, you think about how long that there has been peace in the Avatar world since the Hundred Year War. Yeah, like we had the whole conflict in, you know, Republic City with Amon, but that was like so much more insular. And you kind of felt that tension really building. Um, and I think what we see again and again throughout this season, and especially in these two episodes, is that Korra was kept out of a lot with the history of the tribes and understanding kind of a lot of the tension. And I think it really coming from a place of like, okay, we need to groom her for this like be, role being the avatar and like kind of worldly concerns. But it, it also is like, okay, well, wouldn't it be important though to think about the history between these tribes? Because there's a lot that happens here that Cora seems to be finding out about for the first time. Um, and I understand because she's kind of like a narrative vehicle for us as viewers. Um, but it, it is very interesting that there is a lot of this conflict and it is all coming as a surprise. Yeah. I mean, it, it does make sense because, I mean, she pretty much grew up in like the White Lotus compound, I guess. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, she she would have been very isolated and sheltered from the cultural tensions between the North and the South, I feel like. She also doesn't strike me as the person who would go hit the books and like read about history. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. <laughs> so Unalak talks about the, you know, his reasoning for this is that, you know, the troops need to be here to protect the Southern portal from those who would do it harm. And that the next phase of things is that the Northern portal needs to be opened so they can travel freely between the two tribes and in that moment, it's kind of like, oh, okay, that actually is kind of amazing. Like you would open up travel between two tribes that are on opposite ends of the world. But it's like, it, why with the invading force? Like, <laughs> yep. yeah, but I mean, I think that, it, you know, where a lot of the trajectory of this season goes, it's uh, there's a lot building that we just don't know yet. Um, so the scene and or the episode transitions and we go to the air temple and we really have our first real scenes between Bumi, Kaya, and Tenzin and Pema. And immediately we're thrown into, uh, some sibling conflict as Tenzin misremembers, according to Kaya and Bumi, the vacations that they took with Aang. And he's like, well, don't you remember we went to Kyoshi Island to ride the elephant koi? Or we went to Ember Island? And they're like, um, uh, no, no. You did. <laughs> it's like, we were not there for that. And it 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 really is kind of this sad moment because like Tenzin, you can tell is like, wait, I legitimately thought. You can see that there is like a genuine, like he really believed that. Mm-hmm. Well, first off, I'm just going to go ahead and say, Kai is my favorite of the siblings. Oh. She's amazing. I love her sense of humor. It's like, as I'm sitting here watching this, I'm like, yep, I'd say that. That's how I'd react to this situation. Right there. 
Yes. Kaya, but, uh, Kaya is absolutely wonderful. She is such a such an incredible character. And I, I'm glad that we get to like explore this. And immediately we're getting into the echoes of the fact that these were the kids of the last Avatar. And the just monumental impact that Aang and Katara had on the world. And these are their children. And we're seeing them as they are later in life grappling with their childhood and really kind of coming to terms with it, which is, it's definitely been interesting. I, I it's, I, I don't know if I've kind of had as much of that, like at this point in my life, but I know that like, it's just the more, the older I get and the more I talk with like my sister or hear from my cousins and just their experiences of like, you know, looking back on their lives and looking back at like their childhood or, you know, even just thinking about like my grandparents and examining the roles that my parents, how my parents were raised and kind of having that perspective. It's incredible when you start to kind of really look at that and look at the effects of how that kind of echoes through and how they are immediately addressing that here in Korra and not shying away from it. I, I think it was such a great, bold choice for them to embrace it and not just ignore it. Yeah, definitely. And it's, I mean, like you were saying, it's kind of sad because like, I think, you know, we as viewers are kind of on Tenzin's side at first. Like, you know, we want to believe that, well, of course, Aang is a great father and, you know, raised his children upright and, loved everyone and was you know the model father because he's ang but like that might clearly wasn't quite the case and you know it's kind of like the children of celebrities and stuff you know the ones that follow in their parents footsteps like the airbender he's you know clearly the the gem of the bunch and gets more praise and more special attention while the others are just kind of shuffled off to the side a little bit and like it's it's really it's very eye-opening because it's proves that you know ang is a person and he's Mm. he is fallible and like yes he apparently made some fairly serious mistakes when he was raising his children and didn't uh you know didn't accept them as thoroughly as he accepted Tenzin because he was an airbender or you know whatever reason he may have had but as far as I'm aware he because he was an airbender you know yeah absolutely and, and I mean it's but it's also coming from the perspective of Cayenne Bumi too and it's mm-hmm. not to say that like their perspective is invalid but right. it's also pretty biased as well in terms of like how they viewed their experience growing up Mm-hmm. Um, but I love the point that you made too, that it's like it humanizes uh, Aang in a big way. And I think that that's so spot on. It's why I, I love it because so much of what Korra I think succeeds in, in terms of being a sequel series is that it does not lean into this like rose rosy eyed nostalgia mm-hmm. that a lot of other series and sequels and things like that often do. Yeah. And it it doesn't like brutally pick it apart, but it's it's very real. And I think that that is just what Mike and Brian do because they create a very real world. And mm. 
just with a short scene like this. I mean, we're talking about this like we've been talking about this for like the past like almost five minutes now. But it's like right. this was such a sh- this was such a short scene, but it is jam packed with so much narrative weight, and uh, that is what I have loved so much about revisiting Korra. And I think again how tight the writing is uh, for uh, for this as a series. As we kind of see, this is like you know Jinora and Milo. Uh, they're Clearly must have been teasing Iki because she is gone and Pema's pissed. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, and it's just like, it's like, okay, where is your sister? And it's like, they were like essentially pretending that like she didn't Who? exist. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. The at, at first when they got to that part, I see, I it had been a little while since I watched uh, the first two episodes. And uh, like, I remembered her, kind of messing around in the statuary chamber and uh so like when uh janora and iki were like who i was like oh crap she got zapped into the past or something (laughs) i I just didn't remember that she had just walked off like (laughs) there was there was a lot more going on in my head than i thought (laughs) um so we transitioned back to the south uh and the leaders of the southern water tribe are meeting together and they are discussing what is going on with the North invading. Uh, Varric weighs in. Uh, before we go any farther, um, <laughs> isn't Varric just the most ridiculous character you've ever met? Yeah, he's uh, he's a little over the top. <laughs> so very, very fitting, though. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So Varric uh, weighs in and he is kind of stoking a lot of the fears that people are saying, you know, talking about how, you know, what's next? Unalak's going to start taking our rights away. And a lot of the incendiary language that he's using is very much the same with what we hear, you know, uh, sometimes people will use to stoke up the drums of war. I mean, Mm -hmm. it it is just is very uh, and he is highly charismatic. So, yeah. I mean, he is already, like, getting people on his side. Everyone's just like, yeah, like, this is ridiculous. And it's like, Korra's like, wait a second. Like, uh, she's arguing on behalf of Unalak because she's made this connection with him. And Varric clearly wants to start a war. And he is very passionate about this. I love it. He's just like, I have a whole ship full of halibut just sitting in the harbor. It's like, nobody wants stinking fish. Who wants to buy rotting fish? <laughs> but it's no, like, as, yeah, but like as a, like as a capitalist too, like that is clearly hurting his mm-hmm. business and his, like so much of what he can do uh, by all of this going on. But as we as viewers know, and if like anyone knowing of history it doesn't matter because war means profits for the right people mm-hmm. and we're already kind of getting a little bit of that or getting at least like that's kind of like some of the uh some of the the flags that you start to see with this so tonrock wants cora to speak to unalak to help things out and he asked her to speak to him for her for him and she goes i'll do it for the southern water tribe and she leaves. And as soon as she leaves, Varric continues to stir that pot. <laughs> mm-hmm. See, I'm I'm kind of torn about Varric because 
like he's he's presented as this uh you know comedic effect character and you know smashing the plates and oh these kale cookies are delicious but like <laughs> the things that he's saying are so spot on and specifically targeted like i i can't decide if he's just you know a lucky jester or if he's going to develop into like the mastermind behind the scenes of a lot of stuff later on so mm-hmm. i'm i'm watching him very carefully i i don't know how i feel about him yet <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's absolutely it's it's such a great uh it's such a great read too because of like the like such a big personality mm-hmm. again it's like what he is presenting a very intentional face and knowing that that is what people are going to see. And, you know, someone who has that much, again, has that kind of presence is you're absolutely right. Is it a, is it just the lucky jester or is it someone who is like very pinpointingly knowing what to say, how to present themselves and how to kind of, you know, navigate the situation. Yeah. So then <laughs> I just wrote in my my notes the subjugation of Bolin. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. <laughs> Eska makes a joke about not missing the south and the laughter between her and Desna is just it is absolutely haunting. It is just yeah. like it's so scary. <laughs> a little a little creepy. <laughs> She's like laugh at my laugh at my hilarious quip. <laughs> demands that Bolin laugh as he's like pulling this rickshaw and like he is not in a good place (laughs) poor Bolin Uh, (laughs) he he drops them off and he is desperate to get out of this relationship and asks for Mako's help which as we have discussed in the previous two episodes (laughs) Mako's like I know he's your brother man but he is not the person not not great to ask about relationship (laughs) advice (laughs) But Mako's just like, look, you just need to break up with her. You know, breaking up with someone is like ripping off like, uh, you know, like a leech. It's <laughs> just like you'll feel so much better about it. And it's just like, oh, all right, Mako. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he underestimates uh, Eska's attachment. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> So, this leech off might just rip the limb off too. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I think that that's like what also Bolin is seeing. And it's just like, poor Bolin. Like, yeah, I understand he gets into this situation, but it's just like, you gotta realize he has such a big heart and like, yeah. he just wants to like, he wants to, but like, he is clearly being taken advantage of. And it's like, I think that Mako is so overwhelmed with how he is like trying to, like how like what he's doing to try to handle his relationship with Cora that he is just <laughs> not doing really anything more to help out Bolin because I think he is just like no this is too much <laughs> well I mean to be fair <laughs> I don't yeah. think oh, many no. <laughs> rational people could handle <laughs> a relationship with Eska first off or breaking up with her after the fact Absolutely. so <laughs> there is that too so Korra speaks with Unalak, um, and Unalak is saying, look, I'm uniting, not invading. And then he throws the responsibility of the oncoming war towards Korra, despite the fact that he has clearly instigated it. And Korra is unsure, but then as this is all happening, 
you know, he can say these words, but then he just, he butters Korra right up at the end by saying Mm -hmm. that, I think you will be the most admired avatar of all time, knowing that that is going to pacify her. And it does for the time being. It, how well he knows her is really kind of creepy <laughs> because yeah. like he's not had any interaction with her. So he must have spent a long time studying her and her exploits like in Republic city mm. in order to be able to so quickly and efficiently pin her exactly where he wants her to be. Mm. And this whole scene again, kind of goes back to uh, the naivety that I mentioned in the beginning, because like he's, you know, he's preaching about how, you know, she's the one responsible for all of this and it's up to her to, to stop everything and but the the thing that he keeps doing that really stood out to me is he keeps preaching about uh how the avatar has to remain neutral which is true Mm. but he couches it in such a way that the only possible way to support neutrality is to accept the northern presence because you know if she kicks the north out then she's siding with the southern tribe and you know, if she doesn't open the spirit portals, then she's just protecting the southern tribe's isolation and dooming them to this future of squalor and poverty. But, like, while he's saying all of this, he's, he's you know, putting in just that seed of truth that she has to remain neutral, which she knows. and And that's just kind of overriding everything that she might otherwise have noticed about oh this is an invasion Mm. to like i'm staying neutral and you know accepting the northern presence for the benefit of the southern tribe Mm. absolutely i think there's a lot that we see from unalak that shows that he has studied history that he has really done his research and it's you know that it that's what we're seeing is just so important with this and i think again as i was saying earlier how cora isn't the one to really hit the books he like unalak is leveraging that so hard because him having this knowledge gives him such an advantage but because he knows he has that that advantage he can double down on it and i think that that is also it's just it's it's showing that he is he knows exactly what he's doing and uh, which, which is great because I think that, you know, as, as far as like kind of, uh, you know, antagonists go, that's what we want to see out of them. We mm-hmm. want the and competent antagonists are always so much more interesting uh, to watch. And that's, that's the thing that I really liked about uh, Amon from the first season mm. as well, right up until the end when he kind of went off the tracks a little bit, but like, <laughs> In, in the beginning, and really the first, like, three quarters of that season, you know, everything that he did was measured and precise and intentional and directly led Korra down the path that he wanted her on. She had no control of anything that happened to her throughout that whole time, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's that, I feel like, is what um, 
Unalak is doing as well. He's just leading her on by the leash. She's, you know, his puppet, basically, dancing mm. to his tune. It's it's so much fun to see a well-written villain, because as, as my history on this podcast will attest, I'm usually more in favor of the uh, villain side than the heroes for <laughs> various reasons. And uh, it's that's one thing that Avatar in general has done really well is have a good, compelling, smart bad guy. I love it. Mm-hmm. So uh, as we continue on here, uh, tensions are rising. Kids throw snowballs at the Northern Water Tribe soldiers. They like get them down off the roof and southern uh southern water tribe guys are like confronting them it is like this showdown in the streets and cora goes to intervene but it only kind of starts to get worse uh because she just is again she even said herself like i i am not like i am always the one kind of starting the fight i don't know how to like you know like Mm. (laughs) pacify it or end it and yep there's just a lot of that tension that's rising. And then we see Tonrock comes in and is able to calm the situation. Korra is gone before he can even talk to her more. Um, and then we transition back to the air temple. Tenzin, Bumi, and Kaya are searching for Iki. Um, it starts off with them like, you know, hey, we can go. We can find her together. It's great to work together. And then Tenzin is feeling bad he blames himself for you know Iki running away and <laughs> in true sibling fashion Kaya's like uh yeah <laughs> it is your fault sure is yep <laughs> and Tenzin's like oh, I'm sorry what and Kaya calls him out for not spending enough time with them kind of like dad and you can just the the bitterness it's there but it's like it feels so real and it, it's interesting because Tenzin is still convinced that Aang was there for them in a bigger way than Kaya and Bumi thought that they were, thought that he mm. was and they are continually reminding him that that wasn't the case uh, as these kind of sibling tensions are continuing to build uh, it's like this perspective and to be fair for Tenzin it's a lot to kind of digest too because I think he clearly had a worldview and a perspective of his childhood that is suddenly being challenged and yeah. being re-examined. And that is a lot to take in. Yeah, I mean, definitely as as the golden child, he you know would have had a very, you know, he had, what's the phrase, rose-colored glasses throughout his whole mm-hmm. childhood, mm-hmm. I would imagine because he was getting all of this attention and and praise and you know individual uh bonding with their dad and so like that it's kind of understanding shaped his whole every memory from his childhood you know of course they were a happy family they all went and rode elephant quay together why wouldn't they have and but like now that he's being forced to kind of reconfront that as as an adult with Kaya and Bumi pointing out, you know, like, no, we weren't there, dude. It's, it's very, 
a shattering experience to mm-hmm. to realize that your father, you know, your the idol of your entire childhood was not who you thought he was. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's again, it's it's very complicated too because I know that like it's uh you know you have to think about it too from Ang's perspective. He has two kids, neither of them airbenders, and the future of his entire culture mm-hmm. is slipping away from him and suddenly Tenzin arrives and he's an airbender and the urgency that Ang pours into teaching him yeah it, it, it makes sense does it mean that it's it's necessarily right it, you know it's it's tough because mm-hmm. on a on a like societal cultural level you could say yes but you can't deny the uh consequences and everything that happened to kaya and bumi in the meantime Mm -hmm. so as we go back to the southern water tribe Korra returns to Mako and vents and Mako is, he is stepping on eggshells with the most gingerly feet as possible. And it's like, Hey, you know what? Why don't we do a dinner date? And you know, just the two of us. And then <laughs> just there, hard. Well, there, before we get there though, I, th- I think it was here. It, I'm having some trouble remembering specifically, but he does something that is actually a really, uh, really uh, like smart and supportive and well thought out action. Mm-hmm. Like up till now, you know, he and Cora have been having these arguments and there's all this stress going on that she's dealing with that he can barely even attempt to fathom because his girlfriend is the avatar and, you know, and so when she comes up to him, and, you know, clearly angry, spitting nails, he asks her, do you want advice or am I just supposed to listen? And like the way that they frame it in the show is is kind of humorous, like haha, all oh, poor, poor Mako, you know, he doesn't know what to do. But like that actual technique is super beneficial to uh, couples or friends or you know relations that are having tensions. Sometimes people want advice, and that's why they're spouting all their problems to you. They want you to contribute and to to pour into it. But sometimes they just need to talk, and like. The, the worst thing that you can do is to go and offer unsolicited advice to somebody that's just trying to vent. And so, like, actually him asking her, do you want advice or am I just supposed to listen? Like, that made me appreciate Mako so much more, mm. actually. Just that one line right there, because he's paying attention. He is smart. He's aware that... He might not be equipped to handle all of Korra's problems, but he's there to support her regardless. It was really cool. <laughs> yeah, I did that. That's such a great point. And I love too that you know the point you bring up about how it's kind of masked in this like humorous moment. But I, I think also the way that that scene unfolds too is it's a testament to that because Korra responds incredibly positively. She it like is like I'm sorry. I'm just like so stressed out about all of this. And she like softens and really just like opens up to him. And it's, it's actually like a very healthy exchange for once. Uh, And 
Honestly, rather than them just yelling and bickering and storming off like they exactly. usually do. <laughs> and what's really sad is like I think a dinner would have done them both right <laughs> really really good, but yep. we hard cut to this dinner date. Suddenly they're sitting next to each other. And it is a, well, double-ish date <laughs> as Bolin is there with Eska and Desna across the way. And it is, you can tell, it is just so awkward. And Eska and Desna leave to go get more sustenance. <laughs> and Bolin is like, why didn't you tell me that your cousin would reach into my soul and crush it? And Cora's like... Um, because I thought it was obvious, <laughs> which to her and to us, yes, absolutely. Right. It is obvious, but I love that Bolin is just like, Poor I'm Bolin. terrible at reading people. You should know that. Yeah. Poor guy. He's trying so hard. <laughs> he really is. Oh God. Oh, so, you know, that scene just ends with, again, this just. Bolin is just he's in a he's in a rough place and Cora and Mako clearly don't get the kind of time alone and relaxation that they both need Cora especially and then we rapidly well like I, I love too that like again these two episodes the storytelling is so efficient because we are going balancing back and forth from all of the events that are happening in the Southern Water Tribe to everything that is happening at the Southern Air Temple and mm-hmm. it is just, it's, the, the scenes are so tight and it is going back and forth so well that it's just, it moves the episode in such a great pace. And there's so much in yeah. such little time. They, they cram so much into these two episodes, but you're right. The way that they balance them back to back, like you don't lose track of anything. Like, yes, you know, you, you don't have enough time to wonder why, Tenzin, and Kaya are wandering through the wilderness. Like it's it's always there, and it's touched on often enough that you keep track of everything. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Tenzin, Bumi, and Kaya um, are are you know we're back with them as Bumi is regaling them with the story that is just so extra and so over the top, and Tenzin is he's done with it. He is just like three typhoons. Like, come on. <laughs> and like, even you know, Boomy's just like, well, I might have embellished there might one have or been two of them. A <laughs> couple extra, yeah. Even that, though, is a kind of a sad window into their childhood because, mm. like, you know, Boomy, as the only non bender in the family, he would have been struggling with this massive inferiority complex all of his life. And yeah. so, like, I feel like he's developed this grandiose braggadocious personality to you know compensate for that and to cover his own insecurity about Mm. not being a bender in the avatar's family like i can't even like i'm a little bit of a black sheep in my family but i couldn't even imagine what that would be like in the avatar's family not being a bender like Mm-hmm. oh my gosh <laughs> well that and also kaya like also very often reminds him throughout this episode that he's not a bender yeah oh and, yeah you gotta rub it in you know but you know the thing is is like we see that really kind of uh play out to the scene that they kind of uh kaya spots some tracks and she's like all right we need to follow it down to 
like the bottom of this like waterfall and Boomy is just like, oh, we can go down this way. It'll go, you know, for, uh, uh you know, uh, <laughs> 50, it'll be however, well, at least 500 30 times, times faster, 30 times faster, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, and he's just like, oh, come on. If I can do it, certainly you guys can. And I, and they do, <laughs> and, they, and they do, but like, oh my God, the bending in this moment is so beautiful yeah. of Tenzin, like just going down with the air bending and Kaya going down with her water bending. It's so beautiful. It's so graceful. I, I really want to see more of her water bending, which I assume I will. But mm-hmm. oh, yeah. <laughs> what what I've seen so far is very elegant. Like mm-hmm. her particular like personal style of bending seems very smooth and elegant compared to other people. Like even Katara, she had mm-hmm. a lot of like abrupt movements and you know, definitely Cora, who has Cora style bending. Uh, <laughs> like she's she's very abrupt and aggressive. But like when Kaya did the little water tendril down the thing, like it was it was so smooth and pretty. I mm-hmm. wanted to see more of it. And then yes. the way that uh, they had animated Tenzin kind of twisting down, uh, very much reminded me of like a leaf blowing on the wind back and forth. Mm. So that was that was a cool touch too. Yeah, and it's just like the the animation and the backdrops, everything is just like in just moments like that. They, ah, oh, you can just it is truly in moments like that that you see the massive improvements that they have made in animation and the art style. And it's that that is truly it's just it's so great to watch. And oh my god, it's so good. So uh you know we go quickly uh well before like as they do this then they're like all right yeah that was like really 30 times faster right you're right at least 30 times faster (laughs) and you know and then boomy is like he's like uh like you know kind of a little bit frustrated with that and you know uh childhood all over again here we go yeah and tenzin offers to you know hey if you want to air elevator down like let me know and Boomy is just like, no, I got this. And again, I think, as you said, glimpse into their childhood as they're, as Kai is just like, Boomy, don't be an idiot. And then he just eats it as he like yep. falls down. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Poor Boomy. So Cora then meets with uh, her mom, Senna, and Cora uh, vents about how all of these lies have just been just so overwhelming and her mom clearly knew about it but her mom is like look these tensions they have gone back far longer before you were born and it can't be fixed in a day and that is like it is such that is such sage advice Mm -hmm. and really encapsulates i think just the issue of like Cora's frustration because Cora, Cora wants instant results. She is someone who she does not like waiting for things. She likes meeting things head on and getting those results right away. And it's, (laughs) yes. And, uh, it's, it's tough. Uh, because then, uh, you know, Cora heads out and goes to find, uh, Unalak because Senna mentions that, uh, you know, Varric was looking to start a rebellion. 
Korra's freaking out about this as she goes to find Unalak and she finds out that Southerners have kidnapped Unalak and Korra proceeds to fight with them. This fight mm-hmm. scene, so good. So good. Oh my God. Like the, like as Abigail and I were watching it, she's like, this was like some straight, like Jackie Chan, like style fighting right now in terms of using like the, the banner to like, and then the air bending to like wrap them up in it, taking the rope out and like roping them and then swinging them around. It was such a great mix of physicality and like creative fighting with amazing bending. That that part was really cool to me because like it was it was obvious that like even though it's Korra and she's brash and aggressive and you know Korra <laughs> she was she was holding herself back she was being very careful not to hurt them like if, yes. if I remember right she didn't use any fire bending I don't think mm-hmm. in that whole fight which is like her go to thing yeah um, and you know she, like you said she was wrapping people up in the tapestries and tying them to the pillars and incapacitating them without harming them which kind of again also speaks to you know her training as the avatar and really just how good she is Mm -hmm. because like up until now we've seen her fighting against like amon and the chi benders and or chi blockers rather and you know people like that who are specifically trained to fight against benders so like there's quite a few times where she's made to look like a clown but Mm. here you know we see her fighting quote-unquote regular people like they're warriors yeah but they're not specifically trained to fight against her and Mm -hmm. she just wipes the floor with them like yeah even while holding herself back and like it's it's kind of a cool reminder that like yes this is actually the avatar like she's a force to be reckoned with Mm, absolutely I, i think having those moments where she is getting like the crap beat out of her and getting stomped like that it makes these moments have so much more weight because you get a feeling and understanding that like, okay, she, the amount of restraint, how much she's learned and like what she can do when the odds aren't completely stacked against her. Um, And I think that that again is a testament to how strong of an avatar she is. Um, So without turning her into, you know, the, the Klingon trope that Star Trek mm -hmm. fell into with the, lieutenant Worf, where everybody's like oh he's so strong in a fist fight there's no chance but then like he gets beat down every episode just to yeah. prove how strong the bad guys are like that's something that Korra very carefully has avoided doing and it's mm-hmm. i really appreciate that and then we have scenes like this where we're reminded just how effective a fighter she really is mm-hmm. absolutely so i uh... Unalak uh, is rescued by Korra uh, as like the like the kidnapper is getting away on like a snowmobile, and then she yeah. just does this great water bending move as it just sends it up, it's like and just crashes it to the ground, uh, and it's just like it's so good. And then she confronts, and she thinks that it's her father this entire time, but then takes the mask off, and it's not him. Unalak immediately says that he wants to lock Vera Varric up. And then Cora's like, wait, hold on a second. You know what? I think they should stand a trial. And Unalak is like, 
I will respect your wishes. And feeding into that. Right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so uh, we go back to the Southern Water, or the Southern Air Temple, and Tenzin, Bumi, and Kaya are arguing. Uh, they talk about how, you know, Tenzin's like, Bumi, you're the oldest, yet you act the youngest. Kaya calls out Tenzin for not being there when Aang died. Like the the conversations that are happening here are just like, they are so real for, I feel like it, I, I can't even imagine being like a, like a middle-aged parent, like watching this scene and like hearing Kaya being like, look, you weren't there when dad died. And I had to go like hang out with mom and like take care of her and all of this. And then Tenzin firing right back and being like, well, if you weren't going across the world trying to find yourself, then maybe, uh, you know, it's time you settled down. Like there is, so much that is packed into this like whole argument Mm -hmm. that is spilling over an entire history of their like their family and their like everything it's absolutely incredible and and they're so sad they're all such vibrant real characters Mm -hmm. that like they can have these sort of conversations without feeling forced or artificial like you can feel that there's tension behind these like you know there's a reason that kaya tends to be the quieter you know kind of serious toned voice in these conversations and you know there's a reason that boomy is so gregarious and outgoing and like that all of that compounds into this family drama that they've been dancing around for the last who knows how many years you know, and now it's all bubbling to the surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It, and it's just like, in, it ends with them all going their separate ways. This like whole tension that has been building over these last couple episodes, like with them, it, it is, it comes to a boiling point and they split. And the last thing before they split too, that I think it's worth noting is that, you know, Tenzin is like, look, you don't know what it's like to shoulder the future of an entire culture. And I feel like that is something that Tenzin has not actually vocalized mm-hmm. until this point. It feels like he, he is the type of character that I don't think would like go around saying that. Yeah. But no. I think that it is something where he is like, he is digging up the like, I don't know. It's that feeling when you're having that kind of like such an impassioned argument with people that you are so close to and have such a history with that you start digging up the things that like, well, I've always wanted to say this, but I, I've held myself back from it and Mm. Tenzin especially. And then that really breaks them to that boiling point or that breaking point and they all split. Yeah. Well, he's, I mean, he's, I think, partly as an airbender you know he's been encouraged to be you know the monk very serene and calm cool and collected and even though like we've seen in the past glimpses of like that's not really who he is like he's you know got excited about the pro bending match he you know got angry and blushy and yelled when people uh, don't bring my inf- mother into this <laughs> right like he's he does have this energetic passionate personality i feel like but it's it's so buried beneath the learned discipline of being 
this serene airbender that like he just he bottles all of this stuff up and you know he he's the kind of person that thinks that he's dealing with it perfectly fine and everything is under control and he's got a tight rein on everything you know but then when situations like this come up that are tense and you know tensions are boiling and he he does tend to lose control and so things like this that have been weighing on him for years they just fly to the surface and he can't help but release that into the air and and for better or for worse <laughs> like it's it's really it it's again it's kind of sad like that he's been taught to deal with his problems this way because it's you know it's not good it's not healthy it's not calm and serene it's just a it's ticking time it. bomb mm-hmm. it's very much the jedi problem i think you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> so we go back to the southern water tribe and cora goes to her parents both of them this time and she breaks down and is just like you can tell just so uh, relieved that it wasn't her father there mm-hmm. and her parents are there for her and her father admits to being so proud when he saw the southern lights and Senna talks about how you know when your father and I got married all we wanted to do was settle down together but when you came along we knew that the world was going to need you and we just made sure that that happened and as they're having this beautiful tender moment Tanrock steps in with northern water tribe soldiers j'accuse and accuses them of conspiring to assassinate him and amidst gasps the episode ends (laughs) yeah not gonna lie almost got a little teary-eyed at that point Mm. it's like it would be so easy for Korra's parents to you know, blame her for disrupting their normal lives and mm. their the dreams that they had for, you know, living together and being married in the water tribe and but then, you know, the Avatar comes along and well that's clearly not an option anymore. But like they're so loving and supportive of her mm. and and like her mom just says, you know, like when you came along we didn't want normal anymore. It wasn't going to be normal. We knew it. And we decided that that's not what our goal was anymore. And they, just like without a problem, they just changed their entire life trajectory for their daughter. It was it was a really sweet, tender, touching moment that then gets rudely interrupted. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it it really, it really is. And, you know, we see that at the very beginning of the series, you know, when we see uh, Senna and Tanrock, like in the White Lotus approach, they're like, well, I think your your search is over. And like, they are just looking like they're looking overwhelmed because they have a young child that is bending three elements already. Toddler, yeah. (laughs) Blowing holes in the wall. But you can tell that already at that point they they were they were so happy and so ready for that and uh, but yeah uh, all right well that concludes uh, episode three Civil Wars 
part one. Uh, any final thoughts mm. on this episode? Um, I get, well, on this episode, yes, but they're pretty much dealt with in the next one. Uh, like when I got to the end of this episode, I was like, I was, I was so hoping that like Cora finally comes to her senses, I guess, and like stops being it's so naive and buying into all of uh, Unalak's manipulation. Because like every time they're together in this episode. He's all like, oh, the Avatar must remain neutral and support the Northern Water Tribe. And she's like, okay, sounds good to me. <laughs> Every single time. And, like, I was just, I was sitting there watching it. I was like, come on! You can't be this dumb. You can't be. <laughs> but then, like I said, in, in the next episode, which I won't be able to contribute to, sadly, she kind of comes to her senses and realizes <laughs> that he's pulling some strings and might not have been quite as honest as she thinks he was. Mm. So that mm-hmm. was that was relief. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, all right. Uh, well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me for this episode today and for all of your uh, wonderful insight and contributions to this. Yeah, always a pleasure. <laughs> all right, folks. Well, you know where you can find us on all those social medias. We are at Legend of Portalcast on Facebook and Instagram. Portalcast Pod on Twitter. You can find our website, legendofportalcast.com, and on all those good uh, podcast listening devices. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And if you're there, uh, and if you like the show, guys, feel free to leave us a rating and review. It helps uh, when people are looking for this kind of content. And with Cora back on Netflix, we know we got more people watching this show and uh, you know, there's nothing more that avatar fans love than just hearing just new theories because you know what? That's why I honestly will listen to so many other avatar podcasts <laughs> and still read through all of this because it's just always so fun to talk about this. Um, but uh, guys, thank you so much again for tuning in for all your support and stay tuned next week as we are going to dive into civil wars part two Episode 4 of Book 2 of Korra. And until next time, and until we see you then, let us leave.